Our scripture this morning is uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. I'd encourage you to have it open in front of you. I'll read it for us here in just a moment. Uh, We've been working our way through this this portion of the prophet Isaiah over the last few weeks in preparation for welcoming uh, Jesus on Christmas. These are Uh, These are words that are spoken in uh, Isaiah's time, about 700 years before Jesus was born. They're spoken in the context of the royal court of Judah. Isaiah is speaking to King Ahaz, who is in the midst of a foreign policy dilemma. The Assyrian Empire to the north has grown in power. They're threatening the entire region. And uh, many of the leaders are trying to figure out what to do next. How in the world are they going to to secure peace in such a difficult time? And so they're talking about peace treaties, and they're talking about uh, paying tribute. They're they're consulting their counselors. They're consulting prophets like Isaiah and trying to sort out how it is that they're going to find peace in a very troubled and turbulent time. Um, that's not just a history lesson. It's good to have that history so we understand the context for these words. But this is really meant to help us understand that these words that were spoken then, speaking of a promised Messiah, are ultimately spoken about Jesus. And because they're ultimately spoken about Jesus, these are words that we need to hear as well. We're not facing the same dilemma precisely but all of us came into this room on a desperate search for peace at a time when our culture tells us that should be really easy to find. Like if you can't find peace at Christmas, when are you ever going to find it? And, and so along with our peace, there's a certain amount of angst, fear that we're somehow missing something that's so easy, so, so within reach. But if we're honest, we're We recognize how elusive that peace can be, how frantic we feel sometimes to find it. Well, that's the situation that uh, Isaiah's audience found themselves in. And so we need to hear Isaiah's answer to that question. Isaiah's answer to that question is, yes, there are are ways that we can find limited, uh, shallow peace in this world. But the peace that we crave, the peace that we really need is peace that comes from outside of us. It's peace that is given by someone Isaiah talks about here. He calls him the Prince of Peace. One who can give us, even in the midst of difficult circumstances, peace you cannot find anywhere else. Isaiah talks about it here, and it's what I want to talk about this morning. Let's give our attention to God's word, beginning with verse 1, Isaiah chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish, In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. 
For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing unto you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, when we talk about peace, uh, Christianity has this radical proposal, and it goes something like this. Uh, While all of us are searching for lasting peace in places we will never find it, the God of peace, the Prince of Peace, comes searching for us in a place we would never expect to find him, as a baby in a manger. And this morning, I want to talk about what it means for Jesus to be the Prince of Peace. And by that, I also mean your Prince of Peace, your Chief Peace Officer, your CPO, If you already have one, I'm going to encourage you to get a different one. If that's you, I really encourage you to get a different one because all of us are desperate for peace and looking for it in places that will never give it, and yet God has come looking for us to give us peace we can't find anywhere else. So two questions this morning. What kind of peace is that? What kind of peace does Jesus as the Prince of Peace bring us? And how do we experience it? What kind of peace is it? And how do we experience it? First of all, what kind of peace is it? Theologians have often distinguished between two kinds of peace that Jesus brings into our lives. Peace with God and the peace of God. Peace with God and the peace of God. Um, Now, just the very idea that someone else needs to broker peace with God between us and God tells us that we've got a problem. We've got a problem, uh, a relational problem between us and the Lord that that we would need someone to come and bring peace between us, us and God tells us that we're not naturally at peace with God. And that may come as something of a surprise to some of you. You don't remember the last time you declared open warfare on God. And yet, The Bible helps us reflect a little more deeply about what that means. One of the places that we find this explanation is in the New Testament, in the book of Colossians chapter 1. So in Colossians chapter 1, the apostle Paul is writing to the early church, and I'm going to paraphrase what he says in verses 20 to 21. He says this. He says, at one time, you were at war with God. Your mind was hostile toward him. Your heart was against him. And what he means by that is, There was a time in which uh, we resented God's authority in our life. We didn't want God telling us what to do. We resisted his laws. They seemed too hard for us. They seemed too difficult for us. And so we went our own way. We rebelled against him. We ran away from home. But Paul goes on to say, but God made peace with us. How did he do that? Paul tells us, in his body on the cross, Jesus made peace between us and God. Notice what's happening there. Um, The gospel, the good news of Christianity, is not 
that you finally came to your senses and pulled yourself together and said, you know, I've really got to work on this relationship with God thing, so let me make peace with him, uh, you know, by cleaning up my act or, or being really religious. No, the gospel is that long before you, that idea even crossed your mind, God made peace with you. In fact, in a different place in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 5, also the Apostle Paul this apparently was a theme in his, in his writing and his thinking. He tells us that while we were still sinners, that is to say, while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. So you may have heard that somewhere in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us to love our enemies. Have you ever tried to love your enemies? I mean, that's a tough one. But Jesus isn't telling us something that to him is an abstraction. No, at the very heart of the gospel is a God who loves his enemies enough to make peace with his own blood. And so what this means is this morning, if you're here and you're a Christian, you've trusted in Christ, he's your king, he's your savior, it means that you are at peace with God. God is at peace with you. That is an objective status. That's not in question. God's posture towards you is as friend, as ally, as father. If you are in Christ, God is always and forever for you. And so what that means is as Christians, um, it means every time you mess up, you know, every time you wander, every time you fall into that sin again, at that moment, you don't have to renegotiate the terms of peace with God. You don't have to prove to him how sorry you are. You don't have to prove to him uh, that, that you're better than that. What you have to do is repent and believe once again the gospel, the good news that in Christ, God is for you. He has won that peace for you and it is yours forever. And that status doesn't change because you are in Christ. What that also means this morning is if you're not a Christian, if you don't know Jesus in that way, you've never trusted in him as your king and your savior, that you can know today when you trust in Christ that you are at peace with God. You don't have to run from him anymore. You can be at peace, not just now, but forever. But see, this is why uh, theologians distinguish between peace with God and the peace of God. So we can put it this way, if peace with God is the objective status, our objective status because of what Jesus has done, we might say the peace of God is the subjective experience of that. And while one never changes, the other changes and fluctuates from day to day. Like we know this from our daily experience. Some of you are sitting here today and your mind is racing and your body is tense and you're already thinking about all the things you have to do at work or all the things you have to do to finish up school or the relational drama in your life right now, and it is stressing you out. You are a bundle of anxiety as you come in here today. You know, if you don't know who that person is in, the, in your pew, just look down the pew and someone is, you know, someone's legs going like this right now. All right? But you feel it, like you feel it in your body. Uh... And then there are others of you who, who, who are in this place of like calm, of quiet, of presence, of peace. 
Now, that latter condition is what, again, we're hanging out with the Apostle Paul quite a bit today, but what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, he calls it the peace that surpasses understanding. It's peace that defies logic and circumstance. It's a sense that God is very much in control and we can trust him with our lives. And it's in contrast with those feelings we feel that I described before when, you know, anxiety feels like lactic acid that just is spreading through your body and wearing you thin and wearing you out. We all know that feeling. But what Paul is talking about is a different order of experience. It's the peace of God. So that even those who know and believe that they have peace with God sometimes struggle in life to have peace of God. So what does that look like? Well, it's important to remember that when Paul wrote those words in Philippians chapter four, he wasn't sitting in a villa looking out over the Mediterranean Sea, you know, sipping on a cappuccino, writing those words, the peace that passes understanding. Yeah, yeah, okay, if I had that, sure. No, Paul was in prison when he wrote those words. One arm was chained to a wall in a dimly lit Roman prison with a high level of uncertainty as to whether he was going to be sentenced to death or let go. So this is why one person has said Philippians 4 is not Paul's essay on the peace of God, it's his testimony to the peace of God. Like we can have real peace even when our lives have been turned upside down. Now, this is very different. This is very different than what we might call the peace of the world or the peace that our our culture offers you, especially at this time of year. So, you know, think back to mid November when the Christmas commercials were just starting to come on during the game and, um, and, uh, and, and you were given all these visions of peace, like this is what your life ought to look like for the next month and a half in increasing measure. And what is it? Well, it's, it's that picture of the harmonious family gathering around, laughing together, arms around one another, around a well-laden table that you made from scratch at home, every single bit of it at just the right time. You know, or the scene that all of us are going to enjoy on Saturday, sitting around the table at, you know, around the, uh, around the family room at a reasonable hour, the kids put together, we're put together, sipping coffee, laughing as our special someone opens that gift that you've had planned for about 24 hours. No, you know, for like 24 years, like this is the moment my special someone gets my special something to let them know how much I love them. Or those annoying commercials of those annoyingly good-looking people walking down the sidewalk in that fake suburban place with, you know, the snowflakes falling down with the car with the bow on it in the driveway. Like, these are the visions of peace that we're given. Those are the commercials that we uh, are bombarded with, but that's not the Bible's commercial for peace. This is the commercial you won't see. An old man sitting in a dungeon, chained to a wall, writing a letter to a church, uncertain whether he will ever see freedom again. And yet that is the Bible's commercial for the peace of God. And it's not just there. It's in other stories you probably know. Daniel in the lion's den at peace. Joseph rotting in a prison at peace. David 
fleeing for his life, hiding in a cave from Saul at peace. So, as you assess your own peace, you should ask, is it peace that depends on my circumstances? Or is it peace that defies my circumstances? Is it peace that makes perfect sense because life is going well and the wind is at my back? Or is it peace that really doesn't make any sense unless somehow someone else had given it to you? Now, I experience this as a pastor. I have a front row seat to this often when I walk into a hospital room and there are people there and I say, well, how are you doing? And they'll say, amazingly well. I can't fully explain it, but people must be praying for me. Or people who are going through a tragedy and say, how are you holding up? And they say, I mean, it's not like I'm not sad, but I'm not falling apart. And I, it, it, it has to be a piece from outside of myself because I, I, I should be falling apart completely right now. That is to say, peace isn't like the absence of sadness or the absence of grief. It's the ability to have confidence that we belong to the Lord in the midst of all of that. And that brings you a peace that you can't find anywhere else. It's why Isaiah doesn't just call him the purveyor of peace. He's the prince. He's the king. He has authority. Anybody can wish you peace. Oh, I really wish, I hope your know, thoughts and prayers are with you. Anybody can say that. But Jesus makes good on his promise to bring, bring peace to you in the midst of whatever life throws at you. Now, some of you are like, well, that, that just doesn't seem fair because, Ryan, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know the week I've had at work. Like, I am so stressed out. Or the week I just had at school, I'm under so much pressure to finish the semester well. I know what I have to get on the test on Wednesday. I'm not sure I'm going to get that grade. You know? Or some of you are like, I, you don't understand what's going on in my family right now and the heartbreak and the grief that we're dealing with. And so for you just to kind of throw out there like peace despite circumstances seems, seems tone deaf to what you're going through. And it's true. All of those things are probably represented in this room. So I don't want you to hear me say this. I'm not saying, why can't you just be more like your big brother, Paul? Okay. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is the peace that Jesus offers is right now peace. It's peace that's available to you now. So how do we experience it? Second question, how do we experience it? First of all, we can ask. Again, Isaiah presents the Messiah, Jesus, as the prince of peace. He has authority and power to give us what we ask for. This is why in Philippians chapter 4, that same passage where it talks about the peace that surpasses understanding, what comes right before that is this. Do not be anxious about anything. That's a bold statement from Paul. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, through, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul didn't just pluck that word guard out of, the, out of thin air, did he? Philippians, he's writing from prison. He's hanging out with guards 24-7. And so he uses 
uses it as a metaphor to say, when we ask Jesus to give us his peace, he posts the peace of God at the entryway of our hearts and our minds to watch guard over our hearts and our minds. So that at two o'clock in the morning, when you're wide awake and all those thoughts are going and you cannot turn them off, in those moments, we can ask, Lord, give me your peace. Do we ask? Simple question, do we ask? You know, like 20 years ago, I would have said, you know, is, uh, is Jesus on the speed dial of your heart? Most of you have no idea what I'm talking about anymore. So, you know, is Jesus uh, on the favorites page? Like, is he in the top 10 of places you go when you're anxious, when you're worried, when you're burdened? Top three? Top two. Where do you run? Who do you ask? Who is it that gives you that sense of peace? And what Paul is telling us here is we can run to Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And the question is, are we asking? Now, in saying that, I don't want to suggest that all we need to do is ask, and as soon as you ask, God floods you with good vibes. Okay, I think we all know it's more complicated than that. But it's at least a place to start to say that if Jesus is the Prince, the King of Peace, we can ask him And he delights to give us his peace. So we can ask. Secondly, we can worship. It's what we're doing right now. So I just want to commend you, even, you know, at 10 a.m. today, that you're here. It's good to worship, to be here. You know why? Because the peace that Jesus brings us It's not all about you. Yes, Jesus makes peace with God for you and presents you in the Father's presence at peace. Yes, when we ask him, he gives us the peace that passes understanding. But ultimately, the peace that Isaiah is hoping for, it's not just about you. Uh, You probably know one Hebrew word. What is it? There you go, shalom. It's the word peace. It's the word that is translated peace right here in Isaiah chapter nine. And you know it because it's a a common greeting among Jewish people, kind of peace peace be upon you. We see it in in the New Testament and the Old Testament as well. But that word shalom is a really interesting word. It doesn't just mean the absence of worry and anxiety in your life. And it doesn't just mean the absence of warfare in the world. Shalom is a positive vision of the world. Shalom is a vision of the world, especially when Isaiah talks about it in his prophecies, that is a comprehensive comprehensive flourishing of all things in all places and all people under the glorious reign of the one true God. We might say shalom is the world as it ought to be. Now, Isaiah gets at this in a number of different ways. Many of the prophets do, but I'll just point out one way because it's right here in our text. In verse 5, we read that there's coming a day in Isaiah's vision when the boot of the tramping warrior and the, the garment rolled in blood will be used as fuel for the fire. Now, we've talked about this before, but basically this is one of many images in Isaiah's prophecy where he says there is coming a day when uh, all military equipment, all 
um, instruments of war and violence will be obsolete. The only reason you, you burn all these things is because you don't have a need for them anymore. And Isaiah is imagining a day when shalom, God's shalom, the, the shalom of the prince of peace, fills the entire earth such that there is no more need for instruments of war or instruments of violence. It reminds me of, of, of one artist, an Estonian artist named Matty Carmen, who uh, his trademark is to take um, furniture uh, from, uh, is to make furniture out of recycled naval mines, especially from World War II. And the one that stands out to me when I was reading this article, the, the, the one photo that uh, stood out to me was, a, was um, a baby carriage he had made out of um, a repurposed mine shell. A baby carriage that he'd made out of this repurposed mine shell from World War II. Uh, and w- when you first see it, it's really unsettling. It's like those two things shouldn't go together. Like this one artifact which destroys life and the other that represents you know, new life and fragility and, and all of the other things we associate with, with a young baby. And yet by putting these things together, this artist is doing what Isaiah does here in verse five. He is saying there is coming a day when even those things which bring the most destruction in the world we woke up in this morning will be obsolete completely. Why? Because the prince of of peace, the prince of shalom will reign forever and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Now, the reason that's good news for you this morning, the reason it's good news for you to hear that the peace that's described in the Bible, that's accessible to you, that it's not just all about you is because when we have that expansive vision, expansive vision of what Jesus really came to do, it pulls us out of our cubicle of self-interest. It leads us out of the cul-de-sac of our personal problems. It helps us see that that Jesus' vision for what he came to do is bigger than just, just the size of our little lives. Yes, he came to bring you peace, but he came to do far more than that. He came to bring shalom to every square inch of creation. He came to make all things new. He came to set all things right. He came to to take this world with all of the pain and sorrow that that we experience and transform it into the way it ought to be. Let me say, one of the places we gain that vision, and I would say the most effective way to have your vision restored in that way is to come to worship. That is to say, we show up to worship on Sunday, not to check a box, not to impress our neighbor, you know, not to make sure the kids are getting good moral instruction, uh, you know, not just to kind of get God off our back, okay? We come to worship because this is where we have our sanity restored. This is where we have our cynicism dissolved. We remember who Jesus is. Like if Jesus is just, you know, the Lord over your little personal life and your personal problems, we would admire him, but I don't know that we would worship him. But will we understand that Jesus is the Prince of Peace who will bring shalom to every square inch of creation. He is now worthy of our worship. So that our 
affections for him are renewed and our awe of him is restored. Isaiah says it like this in, in, uh, in chapter 35. He says, on that day, the ransomed of the Lord will walk into Zion with joy and gladness on their heads and sighing and sorrow will flee away. That's the day we long for. That is the day Jesus promises us his coming. When Jesus shows up in this world, the same world you and I woke up in this morning, he promised that the world will not always be like this, for he is the prince of peace. And he will do what he set out to do. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, for this word of hope that we might have peace, peace with you, peace with one another, and that this world, because of you, Lord Jesus, this world is heading toward the horizon of shalom. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.